0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: If we want to be creative, we have to think like an alien. We have to imagine that we're coming from a different planet and we're seeing the world fresh as if, you know, we had never seen it before. And 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 that's very much the conditions that are required If you're trying to be creative, well, we all come with a set of assumptions, a set of principles that we've often evolved from what we've done in the past. And that very much colors the way we think about the problems that need to be solved, the solutions that make sense, the way we look at the future.
2: That's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Cyril, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thanks for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So as I was saying before we hit record here, Um, I actually got your book alien thinking quite a while back. And then for some strange reason on a random drunken night, I picked it up, uh, off the living room table and looked at it and thought, wait a minute, this looks really interesting. And, uh, I emailed your publicist back and said, yes, I definitely want to talk to you. One of the authors of this book. Uh, but before we get into the book, uh, I want to start by asking where were you born and raised and how did that end up impacting the choices that you have made throughout your life and your career?
1: Well that's actually a very interesting question i mean i was I was born in France, but I quite never lived in france i've been an immigrant all of my life believe it believe it or not and 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 today, I think that this probably impacted my interest um in in terms of looking at at creative people and and what sort of solutions exist to the problems that we face in this world so I was raised in New Caledonia, which is you know not too far from australia um and new zealand um, and that was when I was a child and then I moved to Réunion Island, which is a fantastic uh, place in the middle of the Indian Ocean, uh, close to Madagascar, Mauritius. And what's fantastic about this island is that you have people who came from all corners of the world who are living together in this amazing place that sort of erupted from the ocean. It's a volcanic island. Um, and then I lived there until I was eighteen. Went back to France to do my studies. Quickly realized I wanted to live in a different place. move to Canada. Where I spent a few years, did most of my studies, uh, and then in the end decided to come back to Switzerland, where I live now. And you know, mm-hmm. when you ask the question, how did this impact, you know, what I do? I think it had a it had an amazing impact because, in fact, you know, I got used to the question of people asking me, "So, where are you from?" You know, you probably picked <laughs> up from my accent, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not right from from the place where, where where you know any place that that you can really identify. I mean, obviously, I kept my French accent, but but, um, you know, it feels uncomfortable at first, but then you realize if you can deal with that uncertainty of being in a place that is not, you know, the one that, that, that you've known for a long time, if you if you go over this feeling of being an immigrant, you realize it's quite nice because you, you get to learn a lot and you realize that people live in places, they face interesting situations always, but they also show different ways of dealing with those situations. And, and there's really no standard way of doing things. And, and that's mm-hmm. what I learned from all of those places, right? I mean, we all have different ways of of living, of working, of of cooking, and and there's always something you can learn from each place that you go to. Yeah. And and probably that, that again influenced my, my interest for you know how can we bring progress to this world? You know, how can we understand the, the, the foundations of creativity? You know, there's a lot of different things you can learn from various places around the world and and that's important if you're trying to be innovative.
2: Yeah. So uh, I have to ask about the island because uh, when you said that, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Twins. It's a really old Ar- Arnold Schwarzenegger movie with him and Danny <laughs> no, DeVito. Yeah. And so he, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger ends up being from this, you know, island where he, he's not been exposed to popular culture. All he's ever had is books. So he ends up being sort of this very intelligent person who's stuck with Danny DeVito as his so-called twin, uh, <laughs> <Yeah, yeah, laughs> you know, the same one. mother, who's just kind of a putz. Uh, but what that makes me wonder <clears throat> is when you, you know, on a place like an island, what is the, the sort of social structure and social life like? Uh, you know, how does being From somewhere that small, impact your social relationships, and then as far as sort of you know, popular culture and and what's going on around the world, how much are you exposed to when you're in an island, living on an island like that, and how does that shape your sort of value systems and beliefs?
1: Yeah. Well, the the first thing is that when you live on an island, you know, you realize that even though it's a small place, um, you know, Réunion is a volcanic island, so there are people living in in the middle of the island, in the mountains, literally um who have never seen the sea, believe it or not. And and of course when you when you travel on the island, you go into the mountains. I, I love to hike as a as a child, as a teenager, and you know you realize that wow, you know, there are people who are very comfortable, right, living close to their roots and who don't necessarily have the opportunity to to travel and, and discover what what the world has to offer, even though it's only maybe a few hours from from where they live. There are people who prefer to live in in their mountains and and I've never had a chance to discover the rest of the island, and 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 obviously, when you live on an island, there's always a danger that that you don't get to to see something else, right? You you have this island fever that we all know about because you feel that you're somehow confined on, on the island. Um, but but yeah. what's interesting is that obviously the island is in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and you can you can travel really quickly to to other places as well, and 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 then you realize that actually the island was the gathering of several cultures. There are people who came. You know, it was a you know it was a, um, a deserted island. There was an empty island. There was nothing. People populated this 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 island when they um, and they arrive from from Africa. They arrived from India. They arrived from you know all kinds of the Middle East as well. And now they're all sort of sharing. You know their customs and, and and living in peace. And 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 again, the values that it gave me is that you know again we can live peacefully together. We can all bring a diverse set of views and perspectives. And and when you mix all of that, and you see it in the food, you, you see it in the music, you, you see it in the, in the movie making. You know, there's so much magic that can be created by colliding and mixing cultures, practices, uh, sets of values and belief systems as well. They can coexist and they can create a, a fantastic, you know, set of materials um, that, that is required when, when you try to enjoy life and everything that, that life
2: can offer. Yeah. Well, so uh, having grown up like this, with this sort of diversity of, of cultures and this sort of melting pot, despite being on an island, when you see something like what's happened in the United States over the last four or five years, where we're becoming more and more divided, what do you make of that? When you see that, like, what do you fear are the consequences of that?
1: Well, interestingly, right, I mean, you live in in, in any country where you have a mix of cultures, there's always a, a potential, if you will, for, for beauty, right? I mean, those cultures, when they mix and when they interact with each other, can can create the conditions for newness and, and for great opportunities for learning and, and, and rejuvenation and creation. Uh, but there's also the potential for clash, right? Where cultures don't really talk to each other, don't really understand each other, don't really mix well with each other. And then you end up with a patchwork of, of conflicting sets of values and, and, and systems. And and so every time that you have a diverse nation or a diverse set of cultures that are in coexistence, you have to spend quite a bit of time working on unity, right? And so, you know, and you see it in, in teams, when you have teams of people who, uh, that are made up of, of individuals who all have their own individual voice and, and, and they bring a very peculiar sets of expertise and capabilities and they're trying to work together, they might be very diverse. And so if that's the case, they have a great potential for creativity and innovation and for dealing very effectively with the complex problems that exist. But they also have, you know, a very interesting, uh, sort of probability of, of clashing because they might end up in situations where they never agree. They never see eye to eye on, on anything. And, and so. You know the the team of of people who are very diverse gets stuck and and conflicts arise and and people get frustrated and they they withdraw their energy from 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 the team and so you know whenever I work with a diverse group of people, you know we try to leverage the benefits of diversity, but we also spend quite a bit of time trying to build a united uh, team of people, and the same goes for you know again teams in organizations but also for for countries right? I mean we should be working on integrating our cultures, integrating our belief systems, integrating our practices, you know, but keeping our individuality, of course. And again, we should build bridges and not walls. That's yeah. you know the way I like to think about
2: what makes the world beautiful. Mm. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I you mentioned earlier that you still have your accent, which kind of made me wonder, and I've, I've asked this version of this question in some way or another to, to multiple people who are immigrants. Uh, when you were exposed to so many cultures and you're moving around so much, uh, how do you preserve aspects of your culture through generations. And, and I'll, you know, expand on this. So this is something I've realized being an Indian person who has a sister who married a guy who's from a different part of India where we speak different languages. And, uh, you know, at the rate, things are going at <laughs> My parents are like, the likelihood that I'm going to end up with an Indian girl doesn't seem very high. And my first thought is that the first thing to go is going to be language. And, you know, I speak my, my native language fluently, but even to this day, I have been born and brought up in the United States. My parents will speak to me in our native language and I'll reply to them in English. Yeah. That's just kind of how it's become. And that's apparently quite common. So I wonder in your own life, how you've managed to preserve culture and heritage, um, despite having gone, you know, and lived in all these different places.
1: Yeah. So, so, so obviously, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting question, right? You have to, to stay true to who you are first. I mean, I, I really believe that, you know, again, you, you come to a place that is made up of very different, you know, sets of, 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 you know principles, and 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 you, and you can bring something that is very special, very unique to it. And so you've got to believe in in your individuality and and what is it that you can bring to a team, to an organization, to to a country, right? When you come from from somewhere else, and and that's a very special voice, and 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 you have to believe in that and and, and try to preserve it as you as you mentioned, because there's always a risk, right? That you you end up being like like a virus, right? You, you arrive in, in in a new environment, and and the new environment is. Is is made up of, of a certain set of, of principles and, and and your different way of thinking, your different way of, of living, your different way of doing things might be perceived as, as a risk for, for that system that, that exists. And so like any virus, you might, you know, you might get rejected. Right? I mean, people might perceive you as the alien, people might perceive you as as somebody who is clashing, with with established norm uh, that is prevalent in, in a given society. And so, like a virus, you might you might be rejected. But you might also get infected right? Uh, yourself, right? I mean, you know the system will try to absorb you. So if they don't reject you, they will try to to make you look more like 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 the other people, right? Who, who are there and who are trying to represent a certain view of how the world works. And so and so, as you mentioned, it's very important to preserve who you are, so that you can continue to to bring right uh, your individual voice. But also mm-hmm. you should adapt somehow so that you're not perceived as totally alien and, 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 totally clashing with the, with the systems of beliefs that are, that are in place. So how can you preserve yourself, but also mix, you know, nicely with, 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 with the system the way, the way it exists? And, and, you know, yeah. when I go to my own personal life, um, sweetie, I mean, I, I, I ended up, uh, marrying, um, a, a person who was, uh, who was Canadian, but was also, you know, coming from different sets of cultures and, my father was from India. My mother was from Trinidad and Tobago, and and of course, our kids were raised in in you know in a very global, uh, eclectic you know type of of environment. and 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 I always spoke French to my uh, to my kids at home. Um, mm-hmm. And my wife, uh, we are now separated, but my wife at the time always uh, decided to to speak English to them, and so we. You know I mean at the table at the dinner table, we could switch easily from French to English, but they were raised in a perfectly uh, perfectly bilingual environment. They went to bilingual school and, yeah. and and for us, it was important you know symbolically right that we wanted to preserve um, you know this part of of who we were right and the language is important and and I see other colleagues and other friends who've made a different choice you know they decided for simplicity and practicality reasons to, to just have one language in, in the home. And, and to me, I've always felt that somehow maybe we were missing out on an opportunity to share a part of us that that is important, right? And, and in the yeah. end, my mother tongue was French and I wanted to make sure that my kids, you know, would have access to that language, you know, from the moment they were born. And, and the same thing went on, you know, for, for my wife and, and English.
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny because I I very distinctly remember I grew up in uh, Edmonton, Alberta for about four years. And I remember in elementary school, we had uh, classes that were in French and classes that were in English. And I always wondered to this day why my parents didn't put me in the French class, because as you probably know, it's so much easier to learn a language when you're a kid. Somehow you just pick it up without even trying. Yeah, for, um, for for sure. <laughs> so what? So you leave the island. What has been the trajectory of your career that has led you to the point where you are writing this book and doing the work that you do yeah. after leaving the island?
1: Well, listen, you know, I, I I left the island. I was seventeen. Went went to France. You know, decided to to go to university over there, and then quickly realized that in fact, you know, I wanted to continue to to discover the world, and uh, and I, I quite didn't fit in France, right? I mean, I didn't spoke uh, didn't speak like 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 the Parisians. Uh, I, I didn't dress like them, and and in fact, there was an exchange program with the with the University of Ottawa in in, in Canada, and I just decided to, to to go for it, and and then discover the culture. In fact, in Canada, that was very welcoming, and 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 allowed me to do exactly what you were saying. You know, preserve who you are, uh, bring it to the country, because that's what what that's what makes Canada actually beautiful is this gathering of of different cultures and um and and, and then uh, essentially i was still a french a citizen and at some point i had to do my military service realized that uh, you know i i could do it uh, as a civil service decided to become a teacher uh, in in canada for a couple of years and then realized i loved it right? and so decided to go back to school uh, and after a few years join imd imd is is here in switzerland is a very special place um it's, it's a business school that is one of the leading business schools in the world, but it was founded by business executives for business exec- executives. And, and so it's a place that gives me the opportunity to, to work with, with real people. Uh, so I work with, with senior executives working in large multinational corporations. Uh, but I also work with small startups who are, are trying to somehow bring, you know, new value to the world and you know every time every day when i go to work i have the opportunity for conversations with with people who are trying to reinvent who they are what they do and over the years i've learned a great deal about what makes certain people certain organizations successful uh, what makes them able to think differently about the world in which we live um, identify important meaningful problems that need to be solved but also be creative in the kinds of solutions that they that they bring to the world and so I've seen yeah. a lot of willingness to reinvent what we do, uh, but I've seen interesting journeys with sometimes great successes, uh, but also in other occasions, frustrations. In, mm-hmm. And you learn from all of those experiences, and that's what we try to bring in
2: the book. Yeah, so two questions. Um, you know, we talk, when anytime you go to a, a new place, they they talk about this whole idea of culture shock. Uh, yeah. And I wonder when you come from, uh, you know, the island to France to Canada, when you get to Canada, what aspects of the culture shocked you? When I came from France to Canada,
1: I remember, you know, I mean, you know, one of the big things when you arrive is, is like all those student clubs, you know, that you discover. And, you know, so I was doing my, my MBA in Canada and literally on the first day you get in introduced to all the clubs that you could, that, that you could, uh, uh, that you could participate to. And, and, and then I remember the first people I ended up talking to were absolutely wonderful individuals, uh, were, were a club of the, you know, sort of uh, gay and lesbians and, and transgender. And, and I felt, wow, this is amazing because I could never imagine. And at the time, I mean, it was, it was, it was, you know, 30 years ago uh, or 20 years ago rather. and, and I couldn't imagine that, uh, that, you know, this, this could be possible in, in a country like France, who was much more traditional. And, and, you know, in France, you would expect to see the sports clubs and the chess clubs. And, but, but here, you know, very much part of the conversation was a club that was trying to advance, uh, you know, conversations on a very important societal topic. And you know, it was part of the university life. And, and, and I felt, yeah, you know, there's something I'm going to learn in this place that, that maybe, um, would have not been possible yet, you know, in France. I think, I think since then, uh, you know, we've advanced in, in many other countries around the world. But that's one of my first few vivid images that I remembered, you know, from arriving in Canada and discovering, you know, what does student look like? <laughs> what does student mm-hmm. life look looks like? You know, and what sort of conversations can you have when, when yeah. you're trying to think about your place in society?
2: Well, I mean, speaking of student life, I I knew, you know, with you being a professor, as any academic who comes to my show has to deal with, there's no way we're going to get out of this without talking about education reform. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because in the United States, and you probably are somewhat familiar with this, students here are often riddled with mountains of debt. And, you know, I've even said, uh, you mentioned, you know, you're at a business school that was created for executives by executives, I went to an MBA program that I described as an $80,000 surf lesson um, at Pepperdine. And I said, you know, I got out of this school and I realized that you know going to business school teaches you nothing about running a business. And <clears throat> that, that's the conclusion I drew from my own MBA, but you're a professor, which you know, makes you far more credible than I am in this <laughs> circumstance. Um, and I, I wonder when you look at the contrast in terms of education where you're at versus what you've seen around the world, what are the the differences, and if you were put in charge of reforming the education system in the United States, which I realize is an insane question that you know, I'm expecting you to answer you know in less than five minutes, um, what would you do? What would you do differently to fix the things that are wrong
1: <laughs> well i mean it's, it's interesting and in, in at which level right I mean I think one of the most uh sort of impactful TED talks of of, of all times you know is is, is around what's What's wrong with the, with the school system? And it happens to be in the in the UK. And uh, at least what, what was described. And how is it that schools from a very young age, right, um, doing things that might be killing the imagination and the creativity of kids, right? Because we socialize people from a very young age into the right way of of doing things, right? And there are certain standards that that need to be achieved, and there's certain ways of behaving and 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 who are we to to say often right so from a very young age, we kind of teach people you know what they should aspire to you know what does a good practice look like and and in the process, we also discourage deviant behavior right or or actually different behavior um and and we discourage kids from from continuing to express their their creativity and so I think the you know my 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 first um my first level of 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 interest if you will would be around what is happening in schools and and you know are we only emphasizing the academic uh, uh, sort of topics and credentials or are we creating uh, possibilities for kids to be well-rounded you know individuals with uh, uh, who have a chance to explore and develop their character who have a chance to to develop their appreciation for nature for for the arts for for essentially all the the, the dimensions that are important to, to uh, achieving um, happiness in, in 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 their lives and contribute to the progress of of society and not just business, and so th- that would be the, the the first thing. Now, of course, when you get you know uh, to continue uh, on this education journey and you and you become a teenager and an adult and and you go to university, there's a lot of things that could be changed, right? And you you mentioned the the fact that us universities but this is also becoming the norm in many other countries are very expensive and so what is it that we do to provide opportunities for individuals who are very talented and who are not coming from very rich families to to have access to the the best learning uh, possibilities uh, that that exist and and here when you think about it i mean all those universities are funded by you know very wealthy donors and and obviously you know, where is the money um, going to? And so sometimes it is going to uh, research, which I think is very, very important. It is also going to, you know, to the professors and, and attracting the best talent uh, uh, from around the world. Um, uh, but it is also, you know, going maybe uh, uh, sometimes in, uh, in dormants, you know, it's those reserves that universities uh, continue to accumulate. And sometimes you wonder what is the purpose of of those reserves, you know. <laughs> And there's certainly a lot more that we could do to make sure that, that the companies that contribute funds to the functioning of universities are also creating opportunities for the, the less wealthy individuals to have the right uh, for this education that is, that is very special. But, you know, mm. sometimes we think that uh, the answer to, for this is for governments to, to, to provide you know, free uh, um, access to education. And some countries have been successful with those models and, and other countries less so. So if you go back to the case of France, right? you really have a two-tier system, uh, unfortunately, and you've got a lot of universities that are free, and you look at their classrooms, and they are crowded, <laughs> and uh, the professors have very few budgets to be able to to realize their full potential. And then you have the elite schools, uh, very, uh, very rich, but also very expensive. So yeah. you know, there's certainly a lot of things that could be changed, uh, but that requires you know, new types of conversations between the government, between the companies that are contributing funds to the functioning of universities and from universities themselves. So it's about, wow. you know, creating the right conditions for success for everyone involved.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that that makes a, a perfect segue into talking about the book. Uh, first off, how did you even come up with this framework of alien thinking?
1: <laughs> well, this 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 was, again, uh, you know, interesting. I mean, I, I, I had... Uh, you know, um, uh, one of my colleagues, um, who is actually also a professor in 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 Canada, is, is teaching at at uh, McGill University, and her name is Estelle Metayer, and she she was, you know, sort of teaching a session in 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 one of my programs, and and she did it a few times uh, around overcoming biases, and and again looking at the world with with new eyes, and and in fact, her inspiration was also was also based on a on on a book that was called Future Think, which is. Uh, a book that was written by by a futurist uh, um, Edith Weiner and 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 they had a chapter, just a little chapter at the beginning of the book, uh, that was called mm-hmm. "Looking at the World with Alien Eyes." And I thought this was a great metaphor, right? That if we want to be creative, we have to think like an alien. We have to imagine that we're coming from a different planet and we're seeing the world fresh, as if you know we had never seen it before. And 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 that's very much the conditions that are required if you're trying to be creative. Well, we all come with a set of assumptions, a set of principles that we've often evolved from what we've done in the past. And that very much colors the way we think about the problems that need to be solved, the solutions that make sense, the way we look at the future. Right? Uh, mm-hmm. If you're in accountant, you see the world in a certain way. If you're coming in from marketing, you see the world in a different way. Uh, if you're an expert in a given field, they will provide you with a lens uh, from which you will derive all the truths that you're willing to endorse. And and if we want to be creative, again, we have to build multiple lenses into our reasoning and our making sense of, of, of the world. And, and, and the best way to be able to do that is to really force ourselves to think more like an alien would. You see the world, mm-hmm. you know, as if it was like if, you know, it was the, the, the first time that you ever had a chance to, to experience it. Now, the metaphor is powerful also in another way. When, when you're an alien, when you're creative, you come into the world and it's it's a very dangerous place, right? I mean, you, again, you don't fit. You come up with different ideas. You don't fit. Uh, people will look at you with, with suspicious eyes and think about the movies you've seen, right? Really, how often yeah. <laughs> does it end up really well, you know, for the aliens <laughs> in, in the movies? Except <laughs> for E.T. Yeah. Except for E.T. But even he has to kind of like escape a few... Uh, a few difficult situations, right? And, uh, and, and and so that was a great metaphor, right, for us. But it's a little bit like saying, well, you've got to think like an immigrant or you've got to think like a child. You know, you don't know yet. You know, you think you know, but you don't know. And and that's not very useful. It's also like to think like you have to, to think outside of the box, right? You have to escape the prevailing logic. You have to fight orthodoxies. But how do you do that? <laughs> like, How do you do that? And, and and this is where beyond the metaphor, you know, we also use the metaphor to provide a very useful set of techniques that people can actually apply from any sphere of life. So whether you're working in, in a government, or you're working in a company, or you're working in the hospital, or you're working, you're an indep- independent entrepreneur, or you're a writer, or you're an artist, you know, what is it that we can learn from Pioneering thinkers and change makers in terms of how they approach the world and how they become creative. Well, we've studied quite a few and, and we come up with a set of strategies. And that's why Alien is also an acronym. It's, it's mm-hmm. a, a word that stands up for five lancers. And so, you know, the A means uh, something and, 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 and so on. And each letter. Is, is essentially a letter, a letter that represents a part of the mindset uh, that, that you need to embrace and, and a set of strategies that you can use to foster right, this particular take on, on, on the world. And that's what we go through in the book.
3: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
2: Yeah. Well, let's get into those because uh, I think that that was my favorite thing about it is mm-hmm. the fact that you took that acronym and you pre- created this just brilliant framework for how to look at this. And let's start with attention because <clears throat> it's funny. All the conversations that we've had about attention here on Unmistakable Creative have typically centered around managing your attention and dealing with distractions. But I think what I appreciated about this is that you had a very different take on this. It was a, a sort of new idea. Um, when we're talking about attention. And you say, when we turn our attention towards something, we must necessarily turn it away from something else. Because attention is a selective activity, we must choose where and what to focus. The attention allocation directs how individuals and organizations interact with the external environment. It determines which stimuli they notice and which they look at. And then you go into these concepts of zooming in and zooming out. So can you expand on that and talk about how it affects our work?
1: Sure, you know, and, and, and again, we tend to zoom in often, right? When we are, Leaders and or we are creative people we we actually immediately zoom in on on some aspects of a situation that we think is interesting right there are people we talk to um that give us insight and and then immediately we sort of zoom in we we focus our attention we focus our time we focus our effort right on 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 you know on on a certain type of of phenomenon that 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 we think we can explore that we can change that we can improve and 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 that's important we have to be able to do that right but the problem is that we might be looking, looking at the wrong thing, right? I mean we might be zooming on the wrong set of people, the the wrong set of issues, and and, and we might be solving a problem that doesn't need to be solved or that is ill-formulated, if you will, um and, and that will um, lead us in interactions that are not you know very productive for for, for the type of, of progress that we are, that we want to bring to the world. And so so we have to be able to zoom out. We have to be able to see the whole a sort of system, if, if you will, and, and consider multiple lenses of stakeholders that could inform the way we, we, we make sense of, of the world that we live in. And so mm-hmm. we have to see the, 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 the forest and, and, and not just the trees, but we also have to switch focus. And I'll give you, i give you an example, because even if we do that, right? So I take my MBA students every year and we try to improve the, the way we, we, uh, we make sense of, of of the hospital, right? And 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 you know, if we are trying to improve the patient uh, experience, uh, you get admitted to the to the hospital, and there's all kinds of things that that could go wrong, right? And so we might zoom in. We might have privileged conversations with the nurse uh, uh, that will tell us, you know, her own reality on on what is happening and what is problematic for patients, and and we zoom in on that. But 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 unless we talk to multiple set of stakeholders. Right, uh, we won't really understand wh- what can be done. So we need to talk to the hospital administrators. We need to talk to the doctors. We need to talk to the patients themselves. We need to talk to the, the families of the patients. You know, we, we, there's all kinds of stakeholders. So again, zooming in, but also zooming out. Right, look at the world from multiple lenses, and then often you also need to switch focus because even if you zoom out you often still bias. you're still looking at the wrong system, if you will. And I'll give you an example, and I'll choose a different example to illustrate the point. You know, there's a, a story that we tell in the book about Kellogg, right? So I don't know if you like cereals or if you have kids who like <laughs>
3: cereals, right?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, one problem with cereals is that often there are plenty of sugar and they are not so healthy. So, so, so they were trying to come up with a better food diet for kids. Uh, but also, one that they would be able to to bring to school and and enjoy at school uh, for those kids who don 't necessarily want to you know to 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 have a, a lunch provided by the school, so how do you do that and so again they, they 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 zoomed in you know on on the current practices and and what is it that families do and so on and they zoomed out they they talked to nutritionists and they talked to uh uh the teachers themselves to have their view on you know what could be done they they, they talk to the, you know, to, 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 to pediatricians and, and, and so on. And then they realized, well, you know, they were not getting anything really new, really interesting until one person said, well, what if we talk to the janitors? The janitors, you know, the people cleaning the school premises. And, you know, this is interesting because it turns out that the janitors, you know, see all kinds of things that everybody else ignores, right? So they are, you know, sort of present in the school corridors, you know, they see the kind of chats that are going on between the kids. They are there also during school recess. They see what food items get traded, you know, on the, the school black market. They see what food items end up in the in the bin. So the parents put them in the bag thinking the kids are enjoying, you know, some <laughs> nice healthy snacks, you know. But in fact, you know, those are kind of being thrown upon by the kids themselves and they just throw them in the bins, never tell the parents. But the school janitors see that they see what creates excitement. They see also, you know, what is not appreciated by by a group of social beings at this very young age. And and and, and this is when they started to get real insights that they are not heard from the experts, so to speak. So not only you need to zoom in, there are specific categories of people that you need to spend privileged time with because they have coincides on the phenomenon you're trying to change. You have to zoom out and often you've got to switch focus, right? So if you go back to the hospital example I was giving you earlier, you could probably still talk to the janitors, but you could also, if you're trying to improve, you know, the experience of patients at the hospital, you could also go to their homes because in fact, one day, right, they will not be at the hospital. And so the best insights, maybe you get from other settings than the hospital switch focus and you might see the light. Right, so wow. that's for attention, right? All right so switch your focus to the from different angles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, okay, so and levitation, the levitation, the L, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So so the L stands for right. levitation. And, and as you can imagine, um, you know, if you do what I've just described uh, around paying attention to the world in, in all kinds of new and interesting ways, it can become overwhelming. And often, you know, as creative people, we neglect, you know, the, the importance, um, uh, that is uh, of, of the, the importance of, of taking time off and, and time outs and, and creating the space for you to stop doing what it is that you're doing and, and, and in fact uh, gain perspective and enrich your understanding. And if you look at all the high performers in any discipline and the people who are performing but also finding ways to continuously reinvent themselves, they do take timeouts as they do in sports, you know, when things don't work out, stop what you're doing reflect on what is working, what is not working so well, and, and give yourself a chance to, to do something else, right? Something new. But often in in, in in big companies or in various aspects of our lives, we are so busy, we're just going on to the next activity, to the next task, but we don't take timeouts. We don't say, okay, you know, this is not really working out. Let me just disconnect. You know, let me take a little walk, um, uh, you know, a 30-minute walk. Let me think about what it is that I'm doing. I might come back uh, And be more creative, right, in in the resolution of of the problems I'm trying to solve. But also take time Mm -hmm. off. I mean, sometimes we need time off to to actually recharge our batteries. And, you know, we tell the story of uh, 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 Adrian Ferrer, the chef who who, who created El Bully, one of the the, the restaurants that that was voted the the number one restaurant in the world for five years in a row. He used to close his restaurant six months every year. (laughs) Six months every year. Because he said, the kind of world that we live in doesn't give me the space I need right, to remain creative. So obviously, very few of us can go to our boss in the organizations we work (laughs) for and say, you want me to be creative? I need six months sabbatical every year. But the point is, you need space, right? And And all the very creative ideas that we see often have taken a long time to incubate, to germinate, so we can't just order creativity for the next six months. We can't just expect a team to come up with a very, you know, innovative concept in three weeks or in six months. Often, right, those ideas that are very creative take time to incubate, to mm-hmm. germinate, and 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 we've got to be able to be comfortable, right, with longer time frames if we try to to change the paradigm that that we operate in, and and okay. organizations are not very comfortable with that. Hmm. right so well, that's see, for levitation right? but but well, interestingly there's, there's I, i'll one go, go back
2: once when, oh sorry yeah go ahead sorry I, yeah. I did have a question about levitation actually that that you brought Good. up at, you and you you talked about um, the echo chamber effect where you said technologies can also create an echo chamber effect that buffers you from novel sources of ideas because the notifications you opt to receive are tailored to your interest. You discard the creative freedom that comes with browsing. How do people stop doing that? Because to your point, you know, I saw this when I started watching Trevor Noah on YouTube. And next thing I know, all my recommendations were Jon Stewart, you know, Stephen Colbert, pretty much everybody who uh, you know, would basically fall into the category of being on the left.
1: Yeah. So, 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 so you're completely right, right? I mean, we live in a world where the shows we watch on Netflix are customized to our taste. Uh, you know, every application that we use on, on our mobiles is, is essentially trying to code, you know, what is it that we're interested in and, and tries to provide content that, that fits, you know, with, with what we want to see. And, 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 and that is working against us when we are trying to be creative, where we need serendipity. We need to be exposed to ideas that we would have never come across otherwise, right? So, so, so we need to fight this, right? And 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 indeed, that's the problem with digital tools. They're so efficient, right? That they bring the information we need at our fingertips. But sometimes, right, to come up with better solutions to the problems we face, we don't know what information we need, right? The learnings can come from anywhere, <laughs> uh, and and topics that, that we would have never explored, um, you know, if if we had been rational about uh, about yeah. them. And so and so we need to fight that and. And, you know, the simple things that, that we can do, right? I mean, it's still okay, you know, to go to the library and just stroll through the through the books, you know, uh, without any purpose in mind, and then just pick, yep. you know, uh, a book randomly and say, you know, I'm going to read this, you know, and maybe I might learn something <laughs> in this. That So, of course, it requires a little bit of time, but yeah. it might be an investment in your creativity. It's okay to go to a conference that has nothing to do with your field of inquiry, right? Mm-hmm. You might see a speaker talking about a topic that, again, is very different from your own, but the way that speaker is making sense of the world um, might give you an inspiration that will find its way into your own context and make you very creative, right? We say innovators deal with pride, right? Innovators don't have, you know, sort of uh, eureka moments where they, they think about concepts that had never been envisioned before they, they notice interesting things that come in very different horizons than their own and they and they find a way to to bring them and bore them and add on mm. to them. They steer with pride and that's what serendipity yeah. can give you.
2: Well, it's funny you say that because one of the things that I make a point to do, uh, because I know how Amazon works, particularly because I read a lot of books, is I will go to the bookstore because there I will discover things that I would have never thought about reading. Whereas on Amazon, I'm going to get things recommended to me based on all my previous purchases. That's right. That's right. So, so, so invest in serendipity, right? Be humble, you know,
1: go there, give yourself a chance to, to explore. And exactly as you do, you go to the bookstore and you just see what's out there, right? You talk to your friends, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I constantly ask my friends, you know, what, what are some of the, 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 the books you've, you've, you've read lately that, that, that really, uh, you know, brought you some nice, interesting surprise. And, uh, and, and, and maybe uh, there's something you can learn from that as well, right? Uh, yeah. And you don't exactly know what it is
2: when you start, but, but give yourself uh-huh. a chance to explore. Yeah. So you open the section on imagination by saying alien thinking avoids cognitive biases. It prompts imaginative leaps by rejecting the de- default responses and exploring novel alternatives. And I, I think this is what probably made me really like the book was the fact that you talked about cognitive biases, because this is something I've been thinking a lot about over the last year or two, uh, even when I create my own content, I realize I'm doing it from a somewhat biased perspective. And I, I learned this actually from, uh, a woman who was in one of our programs, uh, you know, I talked about productivity and I realized I'm giving productivity advice based on the fact that I am a single guy who has more time than she probably does. And she would show up to our, uh, weekly zoom calls with a baby. And mm-hmm. I realized it was like, okay, in the context of her life, my advice is potentially bullshit. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know it's it's
1: it's 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 interesting. It's never bullshit, right? I mean, but 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 you know, for us, imagination again, there's nothing magical about it, right? It's uh, you know sometimes we have this idea that there's the creative type and 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 they are the, the rest of us, right? Or there's the very imaginative people, as if they they have again a unique innate capability to be imaginative, and you know we can even test for imagination with with personality, and and I hate this idea. I think all of us are imaginative. The kids are very imaginative, right? They, because they play. They play with ideas. They don't have a very sort of developed hypothesis at the start, right? They don't exactly know. They're only there to learn, right? So they experiment with, with ideas. They play with ideas. Uh, they put things together uh, in new and interesting ways. And and then they find their way, right, into the, into the future, uh, and that's what imagination is, is 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 all about, right? And there's plenty okay. of examples of of people again who've taken their aspiration, their inspiration from from all kinds of domains that had nothing to do with their own and, and ended up being very creative. So you know, we we talk about the example lately of Radia Perlman. I don't know if you know her. She's she's a legend in tech circles. She's actually the woman who brought the internet to life, believe it or not. Right, she was the inventor of those protocols, the STP protocols that help people communicate across interconnected corporate networks. So you've got you know computers that are talking to each other on the internet these days. But there used to be a time when in fact, you know, companies had computers, they had corporate networks that were very private, right? I mean, they did not want any information to leak on the outside because it was supposed to not be very secure. And in fact, right Ra- radia or radia. Uh, you know, is is the woman who essentially created, right, the protocols to orchestrate the communications across those computers, you know, between the walls of, of corporations. And where did she get her inspiration? From nature, right? And from the image of a tree in particular. So she was not a techie, right? But she observed nature and she looked at how trees were interconnected. And, and somehow she managed to bring that inspiration to the world of computing and to create, the conditions for the internet, right, to, yeah. uh, to, to, to arrive. And, and for us, connecting the dots. So in this case, with nature and computers is what imagination is, 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 is all about. And there's a very mm-hmm. similar example that we tell in the book. And this is the story of Van Phillips. And Van, Van Phillips is, is, is a young gentleman who had lost his lower leg in a water skiing accident. And he was so dissatisfied with the performance of, of the limbs that the doctors like sort of gave him after after the accident that he decided to design his own. And basically what he realized that the doctors at the time and the the, the prosthetic doctors, you know, wanted to give him a leg that, that looked like a leg, like a human leg. But he realized that in fact that was not the point. You know, what he needed was a leg that functioned like a leg, even though it didn't look like a leg. And so he approached the problem from a very different perspective and he ended up being very imaginative because he drew his inspiration from diving boards, believe benign- it or not. But also the wild cheetah, and he's like, you know, what is it that I can learn from a diving board and from the wild cheetah? And he made connections between the elasticity of the of the um, the, 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 the the tendons in in, in the wild uh, cheetah and the uh, and the resistance of the diving board. And he basically created the famous prosthetic limb that powered. Maybe you know that Oscar P- P- Pistorius, right, to succeed as a professional wow. sprinter. But you know, if you look at the at, at, at that sort of invention—it has nothing to do with, you know, how we thought about prosthetic limbs, you know, in in, in the past. And again, he, he draws inspiration from nature and, and and from objects that are nothing, you know, that are never found their way to, to the medical field, if if you will. And 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 mm-hmm. that's what really we believe is the power of imagination. Don't assume you know where your inspiration is going to come from and try to make links across domains that have nothing to do with each other. Often, this is how great creativity is going to
2: emerge. Mm, Wow. So... Let's talk about experimentation. I think what struck me about this was something that you said. You say experimentation is the process of turning a promising idea into a workable solution that addresses a real need. The top reasons that startups fail, according to startup founders, is that they offer something nobody wants. Therefore, to establish whether an idea is desirable and viable, you must engage in experimentation. Just as important, experimentation is an essential tool for exploring your options and testing your assumptions. But I think what struck me most was you make this distinction between how alien thinkers conduct experiments and the scientific method. Can you expand on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because indeed we spend quite a bit of time running experiments uh, at IMD and and with the the organizations we work with. But often we realize that the way we we, we run experimentation in in organizations is is totally wrong because in fact we are too attached to the scientific method. And again, the scientific method is very powerful and it tells us you develop a theory on any given, you know, sort of subject and then you need to, um, to look for evidence, right? That is going to either validate your assumptions, right? Or invalidate your findings and, and then will help you to evolve that, that theory. And that sounds great, great in practice. But, you know, when you bring it to the world of organizations and you bring it to the world of, of, of us, right? As individuals trying to be creative, this is how the scientific method gets implemented. I'll, do, I'll give you another version. Where well, I have an hypothesis, and now I'm going to look for evidence, right, that will tell me if this hypothesis is right or if it needs to evolve. The problem is that when we look for evidence, right, we are often just trying to find, and in fact, we see only the evidence that is going to support the initial theory that we have developed. And you know, we all do this. I mean, I, I was a PhD student in Canada and I developed a set of hypotheses that I presented to a jury of professors. And the only way I could get my PhD is if I found data that supported the hypothesis. If I just find data that contradicts my hypothesis, they will tell me to go back and study more. <laughs> so we, and, and the same goes, you know, we are trying to be creative in organizations. We are expected to succeed. And so we develop a, a set of assumptions around a new product, a new service, a new solution that meets customer needs in new ways. And then, of course, we are testing. Right, those ideas, but the only thing we want to find is data that confirms that we are right. Yeah. We are there to prove, not to improve. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's the, the, the problem. And one executive I worked with told me, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess. And, 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 that's, <laughs> and, and that's what we do. When instead yeah. we should be letting the data speak. And so sometimes we don't need an hypothesis right we don't need an hypothesis we we could we could just look at data and see all kinds of things that are interesting and derive a theory from it right and and, and 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 we often don't do that we think it's wrong right but we have to be able to play with ideas without a clear hypothesis at the start and see how the future unfolds as we see it right mm-hmm. without always a clear hypothesis at the start so so that's what we try to explain and how to do that in the book as well
2: Yeah. So when you get to navigation, you say successful navigation starts with preparation to respond appropriately to threats and opportunities on the spot. You need to be physically and mentally prepared. And then you say something, I think that this is what I really wanted to ask you about. You said, whether working independently or within an organization, innovators often delude themselves in two ways. They overestimate the ability of their breakthrough solution to speak for itself and succeed on its own merits. They fall to pray to the, if you build it, they will come fallacy. Second, they underestimate the potential hostility of the environment. How do you actually avoid both of those? You know, that's, that's for
1: us, you know, probably one of the most important aspects of, 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 of the book and and one that is often neglected by people who are creative, right? And, and, and because you are creative, because you have identified a, a better way potentially of, of, of solving problems that exist in this world that, that you emphasize that, right? I mean, you, you go and you meet people and and you engage all kinds of stakeholders and you focus on what makes your solution disruptive what makes your solution better than what exists already out there and and of of course we've spent so much time perfecting developing those ideas that that we've fallen in love with them and 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 we somehow expect that everybody will will kind of welcome us with open arms and say thank god you know you've arrived and you know that solution doesn't speak for itself in fact that disruptive solution is going to clash with a number of belief systems that exist and and so disruptive innovators need to work extremely hard to just explain you know why their solution has merit even though it's perceived to be so different from everything that that exists out there and that we've experimented with in the past because it's not obvious right and we also have to take special measures to engage people in our vision because often there are people who are there to protect the status quo, right? For good reasons. Because again, you come up with a different practice. Is it really going to bring progress or is it going to disrupt what is there and, and, and is somehow working, right? And we're never quite sure at the start. And so that's why in, in case of a doubt, when, when you see a new practice, should it? Because it might be a virus, right? That is, that is going to be disturbing, so there's plenty of examples right in, in in the book that that we describe, and there are ways you can deal with those situations right one yeah. one example is uh is is james uh, dyson right uh, and you know of course he he worked and he perfected a a, a system of of you know vacuum a vacuum uh, a bagless sort of vacuum cleaner and 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 initially he just wanted to sell that that concept right to the to the big vacuum manufacturers and so he approached them and say, voila, look at this you know you can have a, a bagless vacuum cleaner. How neat is this? And of course, he was met with a great level of skepticism because for them, you know, it totally clashed with their business model that was in place. You know, No more bags to sell. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, and Steve Sassen, the inventor of the first digital camera at Kodak, made the exact same mistake. He developed the first digital camera, presented it to the senior executives at Kodak and said, ladies and gentlemen, this is filmless photography. And the moment you do that, you clash with all the belief systems of executives who spend their whole career trying to build a company that would be the leader and that would be extremely proud of of, 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 of the success it had on on the processing of, of film. And so if you propose a filmless paradigm, you're clashing with everything that people actually believe in. So maybe it is a new technology for the future, but you've got to work hard. And they are very simple things that you can do, Sweeney. So in fact, it took mm-hmm. him a few years, I go back to the to the Steve Sasson example, to evolve the language to digital film. And the moment you talk about digital film, you show how you relate to to, to, to who you are as an organization and what makes this company special and, and the roots of, of 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 what has made this, this company successful in the past. And and so it's digital film. It's just a new way of, of doing what we know is important. And that is often a better way of engaging people than saying, whatever you've done in the past is, is irrelevant, is obsolete, and look at me, I'm so smart, I, I came up with, with a be- better way of doing things. So, so we've got to find the right balance. We've got to emphasize the disruptive nature of the ideas that, that we bring that, that can be better in, in many ways, but we've got to wrap those dis- disruptive concepts in a language that will resonate with people that they are willing to embrace, that they are willing to support. One of the mm-hmm. great uh, inspiring executives that I worked with in the past, uh, Jean-Paul Bailly, is the, the former CEO of French La Poste, and The Post, like many other uh, post organizations around the world, was, was getting disrupted by, by digital in many important ways. And he said, you've got to change so that you can stay yourself. All organizations exist for a reason. They have a vision of who they are what is it that they do that is important? And when you bring a creative idea, you have to show the link to this DNA, if you will. And if you can do that, you can engage people and have much better conversations around the disruptive nature of of what you do. But often innovators neglect that and they clash very violently with, with established system of beliefs that exist and then they get rejected.
2: Yeah. So, you know, one thing you say when you get into the section on alien thinking and action, I, and this really struck me, you said alien thinking is not something you do at a particular time in a dedicated space with clear rules and staple props like whiteboards and sticky notes. It's not a set of gimmicks, but a mindset change to achieve creativity and turn ideas into solutions. Alien thinking is something you can call on at any time whenever you hit a roadblock. It's something you have on tap when needed. And I I loved that you've said that, because I think the tendency for anybody who, you know, is a knowledge worker, anybody who is a creative, when they see mental models like this, they, and I know this because this is my own tendency, they will tend to go into, okay, how do I follow this, you know, sort of step-by-step approach to get the results that Cyril is saying I can get. Yeah. Um, and yet I, I love the fact that you, you looked at it much more as, as a mindset, as opposed to a series of tactics. Uh, but how do people get out of that sort of map-seeking mentality of, hey, give me the formula, give me the steps, and I'll just follow them to, wait a minute, I need to basically take this and treat it as a compass uh, and, you know, come up with my own interpretation.
1: Yeah. You know, and that's the whole point. And I I think, frankly, that's why we, we wrote the book. Because we were getting increasingly frustrated with the way people try to implement, you know, design thinking and lean startup principles in organizations. I mean, I'm a big fan of design thinking, I'm a big fan of the lean startup, but often the way people implement those answers in organizations is wrong. and because they fall into the trap of you know following a, a neat series of steps and they fill out a few templates, and of course they they say, I need those bin back chairs and I need a, a stack of post-it notes and and somehow it's all innovation theater, right? They give themselves the impression that they are being creative because they follow a series of steps, or they fill out templates. Uh, but, in fact, they are not because they are missing the essence of what it means to be creative and and what it means to see the world in a new light and what it means to to create those connections that we've talked about across very different you know sort of domains of inquiry and 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 to give yourself a chance to experiment with ideas and give yourself a chance to engage people in new types of conversations and build support for the concepts that you've that you've created and so it is a mindset that doesn't necessarily require a very nice sequence of steps. And, you know, most of the creative people that I've met, they don't have like a a nice series of steps that they are following. They just do it their own (laughs) way. I mean, they just do it their own way. But, you know, it's interesting that whatever they do, they actually embrace, right? We fundamentally believe, and that's why we have so many interesting stories in the book, the, the principles that we're describing. And so whatever it is that you do, are you asking yourself the right questions, right? <laughs> are you, you know, considering the, the world from, from multiple lenses, are you giving yourself a chance to pause and reflect? Or are you just chasing the next impossible dream all the time and diluting yourself in the, in the process, right? Uh, you mm-hmm. know, are you making those connections between domains that have nothing to do with each other, playing with ideas like a kid would do? Are you experimenting really to improve and not just to prove that you're correct, Right. Are you navigating yeah. all the forces that can support or block your progress, right? And, and if you ask yourself those kinds of questions and, and there are things that you can do to, to give yourself a chance to, to, to embrace those, those questions and integrate them into your day-to-day practice, then you will end up being creative regardless of the process and the steps that you follow.
0: Mm, wow.
2: Wow. Um, well, I have absolutely loved talking to you Um, I think that this has just been a a really just eye-opening, insightful conversation. I love this book because it really teaches you to question your own assumptions and then think differently, which I love. Uh, So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Tell me, tell me, sweetie. (laughs) So it's funny because people have <clears throat> answered this question in different ways. And of course, when you write a book called Unmistakable, you have to define it. Uh, and I have always defined it as doing something that is so distinctive that nobody else could do it but you in the way that you do it.
1: Well, you know, and, and, and it's interesting because when you asked me that question, I, I thought about the French expression, which is je ne sais quoi. And, and I don't know if you've you've heard it, but I have. You know, we are all beautiful and, you know, it doesn't matter... You know, who you are, how you look, what you do. We are all beautiful and we can all bring something very special to this world. But w- where things tend to go wrong is when we lose that sense of individuality, which, you know, the French uh, refer to the expression, je ne sais quoi, that there's something quite interesting about each one of us. And, and you know, we have to spend some time to think about what that is, right? And what is this... Uh, um, you know, unmistakably uh, cre- creative part of, of of us, right? That 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 we have to find out, and if we can preserve that, if we can preserve that sense of individuality, you know, then we can we can bring it to to everything that we do, and and we can make the world, um, and it can be a small part of it, more beautiful and more interesting for for all of us to to enjoy.
2: Mm, amazing. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and insights with our uh, listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Um, well, in fact, we, we, we put up
1: uh, a website that is called alienthinking.org. Um, and, and I really encourage everybody to to take a look at the website because we, um, we post a, a number of stories uh, that we've written, uh, very current stories um, of individuals um, and especially... Uh, uh, women leaders also that 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 we've uh, met that we've uh, enjoyed spending time with, um that that are very alien in their approach to the world, and I really hope that you can find inspiration in in those stories. Uh, very soon there'll be also a little diagnostic tool that uh, that you can take. Uh, in fact, uh, is going to be up in the in the next few days, and so you can put yourself to the test. You know, there's a few questions that you can answer and and um and and you can see what are some aspects of of your mindset that you can that you can work on and and we'll provide you with a tailored set of recommendations that that you can follow um and and all of this is accessible on the website and so alienthinking.org uh we want to maintain it and and, and make it a place that uh, that you like so you know feel free to uh to visit it and there's even a contact form so if you want to get in touch with in touch with us through the website, you know, we'll be delighted to, to, uh, to chat.
2: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing,
4: off your first order at code buttery exclusions apply. see site for details
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity Well what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World and this is more than just a guide it's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com four keys and download your free copy.